So what has motherhood taught you? I feel like the biggest thing so far that I've gotten from motherhood is to have grace for myself. That's where joy is found even too. I find so much more things in life more enjoyable when I can just be present in the moment with my kids and kind of let the little things go. You cannot predict what the future holds. My anxiety just peaks and I think about that. And how, as a mom, how do you get past it? You just have to go and trust that your unconditional love will get them through and you yourself. So you accept what their choices are and go with it. I think we can all agree motherhood is hard. Not hard in the physical pick up this 200 pound weight kind of way, though C-sections are their own unique type of pain, but more like a nagging foot blister kind of way. And I'm not comparing motherhood to a foot blister, not directly at least, so bear with me here. What I'm saying is it's always with you, stuck to you. You are never not a mom after becoming one. If your kids are grown, if your kids don't talk to you anymore, if you've lost a child, if you don't recognize the child you raised, if you talk to them daily or just once a year, if you've got a newborn, a toddler, a preteen, a teen, an adult, if you adopted or had a natural birth or had a scheduled C-section, you are always a mother. And it doesn't really matter how you got there. It's kind of like a soul tattoo. I remember my labor and delivery with our firstborn, our son, and how it really changed the way I view parenthood. After starting contractions in the newsroom, like actually having to pause on camera while taping something to take a breath, thinking it was Braxton Hicks contractions, and then proceeding to be sped home in a news truck with a very anxious photographer, all while insisting there's no way this is real labor. Like motherhood has been trying to teach me something, something big, something important and hard, and something, frankly, that I still have to learn daily. I am no longer in control. It was almost like God needed to get my anxious mind that memo ASAP before the baby was even here. And it's true. No matter how much we schedule our kids' lives, their activities, their schooling, really anything that has to do with them, we're really not in charge ultimately when it comes to motherhood. We grow the baby, we get the baby here, we set that baby free in this big and scary and ever-changing world, sure, with advice and love. But then at some point, you just have to let go. I always say motherhood is an exercise in incremental letting go. Sometimes painful, sometimes beautiful. And that's what motherhood has taught me. Today's guest had an introduction to motherhood, though, that was even more intense. Laura Diaz Freeland welcomed premature twins into the world weeks earlier than they should have been here and went through every possible emotional up and down you can imagine while waiting to see what was going to happen. In her soon-to-be-released book, Not What I Had in Mind, Laura details what it was like to enter motherhood in this very strange yet ultimately empowering way. You will recognize some part of your own motherhood journey in her words. And I couldn't be more excited to welcome her today to the show where we can talk a little bit more about her motherhood origin story and all that entails. Welcome to We Gotta Talk. Laura, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Sunny. We should tell everyone, Laura so graciously dropped off a copy of this book to my house, was promptly attacked by my dog. And I was, I, I, I had half of my hair up and half of my hair, I was on an emergency call that I wasn't expecting. So Laura, thank you for your graciousness in coming back, even though I should have scared you away. Oh my moment. gosh. Nothing can scare me after what I've been through. You know what? Well put girl. And let's dive right in. I, I said a little bit of this in the intro, but you are, there are moms and then there are moms, like badass moms. You were indoctrinated or inducted, I guess is the right word, into the role of, of mother in a very uh, stressful and intense way. Tell us about how it all started, that moment you went into labor with your twins early. Yeah. So I think it's it's interesting to even talk about it from this perspective because I know so much more now than I knew then. Um, so... Then when I, I was 22 weeks and four days pregnant when I was admitted to the hospital, uh, and I thought I cannot be in labor like this, this simply cannot be, this has to be fake. But as soon as I was admitted to triage, they started administering medications that told me, oh, like I, I am in labor. Um, and 
even with as little as I knew at that point, I don't, I don't think I actually did not write this in the book, but I looked at my mom just a few hours before my baby a Vivian was born. And I said, mom, the babies are going to be born and they're going to die because it was not fathomable to me that they would live 22 weeks. And at that point it was five days, right. Um, was not like a viable, if you search the internet for that, you didn't mm-hmm. find like twins serve at that point. Now you do, but that's a whole other part of the conversation. Um, yeah, so that's how it started, right? I threw up and a baby came out and um to make us to not give too much away, um the next baby was born 2 days later via emergency C-section and we spent seven and a half months in the NICU most of that time wondering like are we going to leave with our daughters or not? You talk about the specifics of delivering early, and there are a lot of details that people who have been fortunate enough to go full term would not know. And one of them to me that was new to me, one of those facts was that there is discussion sometimes between the doctors and nurses about whether or not you want to try to help your baby survive. Um, It was a gut punch reading it, Laura. I can't imagine living it. Um, These decisions are being put in the hands of mothers in distress. Of course, a mother, I would guess, is going to say, do everything you can to save this child. But were you aware that that would even have been a point of discussion going into this labor? No. Um, yeah, it's. A, I had no idea the complexities of the conversation and that like, hospitals with level three and level four NICUs have like ethics committees Mm -hmm. to make decisions about whether or not they will offer intervention at that stage of pregnancy, but also that on the line at 22 and 23 weeks, some hospitals, depending on their outcomes, will not give you a choice at 23 weeks because like Mm -hmm. their outcomes are so good. I don't think that, don't quote me on that, but 23 weeks it, if the hospital has really good outcomes, you may not have a choice. But at 22 weeks, you as a parent birthing in a hospital that intervenes, so that's like a, a caveat here, will be given a choice. Do you want intervention or do you want to let your child just pass peacefully? Uh, now, if you are at a hospital that does not offer intervention, most, which is about there it's not that easy to find statistics because nobody wants to talk about this unpleasant topic but i would venture to say it's about half the country's hospitals do not offer intervention not just because they of the moral issue but because they Mm -hmm. are not capable they don't have the equipment and the training training and the protocols correct okay and so they but the issue well i see it as an issue right is that you as a birthing parent in that hospital are told, um, there's nothing that can be done. Your baby is not viable. You can just hold them while they pass away. You will not be told, oh, well, if you were in Iowa or in Japan or at Winnie Palmer hospital in Orlando, Florida, they would be able to intervene and they have, um, survival rates with like good, healthy, thriving outcomes of like 50 or 60 or 84%. Uh, they won't tell you that if you're, if you're having your child at a hospital, uh, that doesn't intervene. They'll just tell you they're not viable. They won't survive. Which is an awful thing to tell a parent, especially a mother who is in active labor and going through the stress of realizing that this is weeks, months early. Right. Or which I was not told that, right? So I was at Winnie Palmer right. Hospital in Orlando. That's a very unique team that dedicates right. themselves to this. But if I had been in a different situation, it could have turned out very differently. I know it's going to be hard. You put it into words so eloquently in the book and you really have a knack for bringing a moment to life. But for those who haven't read it yet, I I would love for you to just take us into your mind and your heart space in, in those first few moments when you realize, Oh shoot, this is, this is happening and it's happening way earlier than it should. Um, I mean, I think that I really, there is a level of, of like disbelief in that kind of situation because I had never heard of this happening. I, um, it was hard to even wrap my mind around the fact that it was happening, but I definitely, um, I was already grieving Mm -hmm. because I was already sure that 
my daughters would die. So short, in fact, and I'm going to give away something that happens early in the book, but that when they came to ask me what I wanted to do, which in and of itself is just like insane that you're about to give birth 17 weeks and two days early. And they ask you, what do you want to do? Um, but my husband and I actually decided we were going to sign a DNR that we were not going to resuscitate because the picture that the hospital is, they actually do things differently now, but back then, um, you know, they were required to give us the facts as we make that decision. And the facts were that there was a high possibility that the kids, the girls would have neurological deficits, that they might have disabilities. We wouldn't know if they would be able to walk or talk or feed themselves. Um, and so they have to tell, they have to tell you that because you can't just make a decision on like, false hope. And we, my husband and I decided very, you know, in it's very like sad way. It was just us in this room on the antepartum floor. I mean, I remember it so vividly is it like, why are we going to do this to them and to us? Um, and we, uh, yeah, we asked for a DNR, but it never came. Um, and when the baby, when Vivian came, um, so suddenly I hadn't signed a DNR and the neonatologist, which that's a whole other conversation that maybe we will or will not get into the difference between like what a neonatologist thinks about this and what an OB, right? OBs are not baby doctors. They only deal with the babies when they're inside the mom, right? So how did I not know this? I feel like, okay. So yeah, I feel OB, like I just didn't an know OB that. does not Right. Like OBs deal with babies when they are inside, right. not on the outside. And neonatologist says, and so the neonatologist that arrived when Vivian was born said, uh, I will never forget like this. Like I just see his face. He said, what do you want me to do? And I said to him, you have to save her. And he said, okay, I'm going to try. And so it wasn't like, you know, if you try, if we try to save her, she could have disabilities. She could have this, she could have that, which is, you know, even as, as a mom now, like on this end of it, mm -hmm. um, I realized that like, if my daughter's had not, you know, needed a walker, if my daughter's had neurological deficits that were severe, if my daughter's whatever it is, right? If, if, my, if Margot still had a G-tube because she came home with a mm -hmm. G-tube like that, I wouldn't be like, oh man, I really wish I'd changed my mind, right? They have, my daughters have really, really poor vision and I'm like live in constant fear of blindness. And, but that wouldn't, I wouldn't go back if one of them or both of them went blind and be like, oh wow, I really wish we hadn't intervened. Right. But you don't know that before you've ever had mm -hmm. kids. Um, like you, you just don't understand that whatever, whatever ways they may not fit in with society aren't really going to matter to you because you're going to love them like so big, no matter what, but you have no idea. And you're going into this decision about whether or not, you know, you're going to intervene, not having any clue as a first time mom. Yeah. It's, it's so weird how society has has trained us mainly through pop culture in ways to like believe that we should have this uh sort of like awakening of grand love the moment that the child passes into the world you know passes from your body into the it's like ah like a light shining down and and you hit on something that i think all motherhood or all mothers relate to which is like it's it's not a light switch you don't have the instinct of being a mom until you're a mom and what is admirable about how you've been able to like sort of look in retrospect at your story is, is how you've been able to like sort of make every mom, regardless of how she brought her kid into this world, sort of relate to that, that sort of transition. It's like, you don't just become this like, Oh, now I'm a mom. And you know, it's, it's, it sometimes takes time and you had to go through that in a very sped up way. It does seem to me, and I know you talk about miracles in your book, that that was a small miracle that that DNR did not arrive in time. And you're, you're, you have a whole sort of moment or several moments in the book where you talk about your relationship with God and your belief in God um, after this experience. And I'm curious how that has changed since not only that particular experience, that like God wink, as someone may call it, but, but the overall journey that you went through. 
Yeah, I, I talk about it a little bit throughout the book, and it's interesting that you bring up this topic because there was part of me that felt like a lot of pressure for this to be um, like a religious book. I am a Christian, but uh, I couldn't like bring myself to that point to write about it through that lens because it is so complicated. Like you don't, if people who well, I don't know. I can't speak to anyone else's experience, actually. Like, faith is not, like, ever unwavering. Like, whatever kind of faith you have. And I have this, like, those situations, like, the one we experienced of trauma or where you have so little control, it, like, makes you crave, uh, at least me, that something is in control, right? But um, I went through these waves of like, well, if something else is in control, a miracle is possible, anything is possible. But then it, I also went through these like dark, deep, ugly places of like, this is so, I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss on here, but this is so, this is so fucked up, right? Like why, why is this happening to me? Why, why did somebody else's baby die? Like, this is just like, how could I ever believe in, in a a good God when things are so bad? Um, And so I like wrestle and I continue to wrestle with this sometimes um, often. And I think what I have ultimately landed on to have peace, like, within myself is that we are human and we are if we are going to believe in in miracles and things that are divine we have to like accept that we're human and we're not going to be able to explain it otherwise it wouldn't be it wouldn't be faith it wouldn't be mysterious i just do you still i mean do you still believe in god i know that's like a crude way to ask it but no i do yeah um does it i don't know like, does it feel harder in some ways? And and I don't want to give away too much of the book either, but there is a moment, um, I don't think this is, is too much of a spoiler alert, where you talk about a set of parents with a baby in the NICU who went to dinner and their baby passed while they're, it, and you, you're in there thinking the same thing you just said to me, which is, my God, how could this happen? Why their child? And why did I- And it I almost made me more mad because yeah. to give away some of the book, like to give away even more of the book, um, that was a full-term baby. So it mm. almost made me more mad because I knew like this mom, like I knew my kids were not going to be well when they came out weighing one pound, right? But this woman, like like she birthed a full-term kid, right? Um, and so I was almost more angry about that than I was about- my own kids um it made less sense to you in some way yeah yeah i but but here's the thing i don't know where that mom is today and i don't know if like what that like how that shaped her life and how that shaped who she became what i know on like about myself is i love the person I became because of this. Um, Like I know things about myself that I would have never known if the girls hadn't been born so early, if we hadn't spent seven and a half months in the NICU, if I hadn't had to advocate for them. And even though I would not like voluntarily sign up for another 22 weeker, I wouldn't take it back. Who are you? Who are you that you didn't know that you didn't meet before this experience? I am like, there is a level of resilience that you can, that anybody cannot really uncover about themselves Mm. um, until you have been through something like this. If you had told me in, you know, July of 2019, when I found out I was pregnant with twins, that they were going to come 17 and a half weeks early and that I wouldn't know if they were going to live or die and that they would be cut open and their guts would be taken out and they would, you know, like it, that one of them would, would literally code, like her heart would stop and her, she would stop breathing and we wouldn't know if, if there was brain damage or not for weeks. Like if you had told me that I would have said to you, Sunny, I'm not going to survive that. Like, I don't like, I, but 
I like to way more than survive, right? Like I raised these girls I, and they're, they're almost four years old and they are bilingual and they can identify the letters of their name on the refrigerator. And they like love every kind of ethnic food under the sun. And they like skip and jump and flip and, and repeat my cuss words back to me. And like, <laughs> I like did that and I would have told you I couldn't, like I would have told you I wouldn't have made it. And there were for sure times that I thought like, oh my right. gosh, I'm going to die. Not them. Like, I'm going to die. I'm like crying. So I just, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, we have, we have reserves of strength in us and um, whether it's that type of experience. And I know I've had one too, where you're like, holy shit, I'm a badass, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, it's cool to hear you say that. It, I, I want to read just a little passage here while we're on the topic of faith. And I think this really summarizes my view of whatever the all powerful is. And it's just so well put in your words or poetry. So I'm going to read it. It says, uh, miracles are big, wondrous acts of God. Miracles are also excellent doctors, G-tubes, and broad spectrum antibiotics. Suffering is inevitable, but it can be a catalyst for a beautiful, perspe beautiful perspective. God is big and complicated and we will never have him all figured out. It's just so well put. And coming from a person like me who is a massive control freak and whose who's big lesson in motherhood, as I've said multiple times, is digesting the lesson that I'm not in charge. Shocker. Um, reading that spelled out in black and white was like the reminder that I needed, you know? So, yeah. so beautiful. I mean, I very much feel like that sums up kind of where I landed that if I, I had two choices, which was to either like let go of this idea that I had to know it all and that I had to have mm -hmm. God all figured out or just like let go of my faith. It was one or the other. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't, there was not another option for me. Like I had to land in the unknowing. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to parents who might be in the midst of that experience right now? And uh, it was over a hundred days, I know, between both of the girls that you were in that NICU on an almost daily basis or daily basis between, yeah, um, two, it I was know Vivian got out first. Yeah. So 226 days total, like from when Vivian was born to when Margot was discharged. Wow. Okay. So Speak to that group right now. Maybe there's someone listening who is that person or knows that person. Everyone's journey is so personal. I mean, that's true in life, but um, the way I had to handle it to not lose my mind, and mind you, I will preface that was like, I did eventually lose my mind. I just waited until I got home and we were out of the NICU to lose it. Um, but I had to take it as like, this is my normal now. So if this is the way, like, this is the way that I get to parent because they could have died at birth. Right. But they're here. And mm -hmm. so I'm going to live like they're here for as long as I get the opportunity to live like they're here and take it they even told us this like one minute, one hour at a time. Um, because if you are looking at, and I like, I feel fortunate that we were in the NICU seven and a half months because I have friends now that I'm involved in this community who like will be in the NICU for over a year. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have to take it one day at a time because if you start thinking in months and years, like it will, uh, it's so discouraging. And even, and as I say that, like, it's okay to be discouraged, right? Mm -hmm. It is okay to be discouraged. It's okay to be pissed. It's okay to hate everyone. Like, I actually think that's a pretty normal, healthy response to dealing with, with this situation of like living in a hospital with your child, whether it's the NICU or I have another dear friend whose daughter was treated for leukemia for years um, mm -hmm. and they were in and out of hospitals. Like you embrace whatever your process is and then like tell the people around you like deal with it like I hate everybody mm -hmm. deal with it this is hard <laughs> deal with it like, like you, you sound like, like me when, when I'm PMSing yes I just hate everybody so that's all you need to like know go away <laughs> yeah 
it. And it's like, the thing is at that stage in your life, like when you are in something like this, you are not responsible for anybody else's feelings. Mm -hmm. And like everybody else needs to realize that. And did your husband, I know your parents were very present as well as his family. Um, What did they do to, I don't want to say like walk on eggshells around you, but did they like, what is something that a caretaker can do to show up for someone in that position? The best advice I ever have is just do like, don't say anything. There Mm -hmm. is nothing right. You can say in the world when somebody (laughs) is hurting like that, like no words are going to fix it. Um, so tell them you love them and then send them food or gift cards or elaborate, insane gifts that say like, okay, here is what, you know, I am thinking of you. Right. And it doesn't have, I mean, elaborate gifts or baking cookies or dropping off a casserole, the most meaningful things, um, the most meaningful ways that people showed up for me were always like giving something of themselves, whether it was mm-hmm. a service or a gift or just coming and sitting. And it takes a special person to do this. Like, I don't think anyone can. So if you're uncomfortable with silence, this is not your calling. But like my friend Asha came and she sat and she's like, we don't have to talk. And she just yeah. sat. But there's just, I think the most important thing is like, there is just don't say anything. Because yeah. you don't know what, what that what that person is experiencing. And so something that could be perfectly acceptable to me might be like very offensive to somebody else who's dealing with it in a different way. And they're just are not words, uh, which is a lot coming from me as a words person, but there just aren't. So say Yeah, that isn't I, that funny when that happens? I'm a words person yeah. too. And I'm only learning in my old age that sometimes the answer is no words. Just shut up, Sonny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you talk in the book about what you call the messy middle, which is like, you know, that part of our journey where we don't have the neat lesson tied in a bow at the end of the road. And it's not the beginning where you're dealing with the shock, but it's that middle and, and it's where people might forget about what you're going through, or it's the time in grieving when the surprise of it all is over and people are back to their lives. Um, how, how do you look at your messy middle? Your messy middle was, was long with over 200 days being back and forth at the NICU. So how do you look at that now? And not from a point of survival, but from a point of growth. I think now I can see that there was a lot of goodness in that messy middle. Um, There, it requires a certain level of self-reflection to look back Mm -hmm. and say that in the middle are when the relationships were built, right? Because Mm -hmm. those doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists who took care of my daughters for the better half of a year, those relationships that I still have with them, my kids are almost Mm -hmm. four, um, were built in the middle, Right. And and the place where I learned how I was going to take care of my daughters with their diet and the place where I understood what the implications were of their prematurity. And I was able to really uh, commit myself to understanding their diagnoses. It was in the middle. Mm-hmm. But I only and, and there's so much beauty and, and power that I took from that. Right. Being there in the middle that was hard and boring and felt never ending was why I know everything I know mm-hmm. now about periviability and prematurity and, and gut health and eye health and right. It, and I can only see that though, because I, I mean, I wrote this book and I really reflected on what I took away from that time. Uh, Did you keep a journal so or anything during the process? So I um, did not. I mean, I did and I didn't. So I took pic- like pictures because I really couldn't will myself. I mean, I was in a bad, bad place, like mental health wise, much worse than I even realized at the time. Um, and so I, but I knew I would want to remember. So I would take pictures and I would write down, like I have all of these journals, but they're not journals. They're like single words and then like pictures that go with those words. So I was able to piece together those, um, the story 
and the things that I didn't necessarily remember vividly from like single words that I jotted down in combination with pictures. Um, but I couldn't, like, I couldn't, as a journaler, I, I just couldn't bring myself to like relive the crappiness every day. I'm like, I lived it once. I don't need to write it down and do it again. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love how, and this could be just like going back and sort of rewriting what you remember of it, a factor of that, but you had fun nicknames for the doctors and the staff, and you joke about how your love of medical dramas carried you through and how it gave you a knowledge of some terms that you otherwise wouldn't have been familiar with. So there's like, I guess for anyone who's listening and curious about this book, I really want to emphasize the levity, the moments of levity that you that you managed to bring in, which is really awesome. Even so far as um, breaking down some of these complicated medical terms into their Latin roots and explaining, you know, there's a little portion before every chapter how you talk about these complicated terms and break down what they mean. So it does seem that the Laura in there, the the funny, you know kind of maybe hanging on to the, to the light moments was, was still in there, a flicker during this time. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, it's like a running joke among a lot of my friends who have dealt with any kind of trauma with their kids, be it NICU or otherwise, mm -hmm. is that like, there's this level of kind of dark humor that you need mm -hmm. just to cope. Uh, and I think part of me was like a little bit nervous because it's a serious topic. And I was like, well, this is the reality of how I coped with this is like there were jokes and that wasn't just in retrospect of writing it, but like there was levity in those it, like in that room. I mean, we, I can say it. I mean, I don't know. It's maybe it was in poor taste, but we even joked about like Margot being like the walking dead because she coded and then they brought her back. Oh my And gosh. like, like when she started walking. Absolutely. Uh, yes. So you can joke about it then. But um, yeah, you have to, right? There has to be like your everything about your perspective shifts when you're in this like constant state of trauma and mm -hmm. without any humor, like how are you going to, to navigate it? And then your idea of what's funny gets kind of twisted when you're in this like constant state of trauma. But I think it worked. It worked it really so well. Asked. Can you like tell us a little bit about uh, like some, there was like the Godfather there was um, a possibility the, doctor, the possibility, the gigantic hands. What was his name? Oh, the surgeon, behemoth hands. Behemoth hands. Okay. Um, yes. There was a surgeon who had hands literally the first time he operated on my daughters, like his hands were larger than my daughters. And so, and like, it's the only thing I could remember was like, he's sitting across from us talking about how he might open them up and find there's nothing he can do. And so they're just going to die. And I'm like, how is he going to open them up with those enormous hands? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um. Oh my gosh. Yes. But everybody's nickname kind of evolved. So they, I didn't call them those things when we sure. were in the NICU. It evolved based on my relationships with them over the seven and a half months. How, how are the girls? I mean, like, I know you said they're four now and you know, before in December, before in December. Yeah. Um, and I mean, bilingual eating all the foods. I feel like our, my kids could take a few notes from that. Um, but how are they? I mean, how is it? You've gotten through, I hate to like be that person who puts the neat tidy bow on it, but in many respects, you've got, I got the bow. You got I mean, the bow. Oh my gosh. And that, sometimes that makes me feel guilty because not everybody gets the bow, but I'm also like, I'm not ashamed of it. We worked really hard to get to where we are, right? We were in physical therapy for two years and we did occupational therapy and I really committed to the food thing, right. but they are, um, as four as four can be. I, <laughs> uh, was just at Winnie Palmer hospital. I do, I will sometimes go back to share our story with like philanthropic groups that come through. And right before I dropped them off with, um, our nanny, I, they told her that they drank wine for breakfast, <laughs> for breakfast because I took them to pick out a, a like a gift, like a toy for themselves. And they picked these plastic mermaid wine glasses. Oh and God. so they were drinking milk from a wine glass, not wine, obviously, like before <laughs> something bad happens to me. But I, that's like the stage of life we're in where they will like, I have to be careful because they will give their interpretation of what's happening at home to anybody. Um, 
Oh yeah. Wait till you get in a bathroom stall and they ask you, why do you pee out of your butt really loudly? Cause you know, when you hover, I mean, yeah. the question I'm like, can we like work on our volume control? This feel, <laughs> I mean, the kids, the things that kids say. Just, we are definitely in that stage though of like, why, what? why, who oh. gave you your name? Who gave me my name? Who oh. gave the spoon its name? That's they sound like your true, like your true soulmates with the love of language, though. I love oh, that. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I just am asking you this as a mom because I, I need this advice. How did you get them bilingual or approaching bilingual? Is this just constant immersion? I know you're, both of your parents are from Cuba, so you're Cuban. But like, how often do you need to be talking to your kids in a different language to, to have it stick? I just need so that advice. So we... Um, took the one parent, one language approach. Oh, I love it. So okay. I only like I only speak to them in Spanish. My husband does not speak Spanish, so he only speaks to them in English. Okay. And like my parents, like they think my parents don't speak English. My parents absolutely do speak English, but they think my parents don't speak English. Oh my um, gosh. So my parents and I, uh, and my aunt is is who nannies for us. So my parents, my aunt, and I only speak Spanish to them. Like if they speak to me in English, I'll tell them like, I don't understand. Can you say that to me again in Spanish? Um, so that's how we did it. Now they actually, Spanish is their dominant language and they actually did not start speaking any English until they were like three, which was really funny and complicated with like my husband and my in-laws because they would just like the same way that we uh, might sometimes like inadvertently just talk louder when somebody doesn't understand us. Like the kids would do that to Jared and to my in-laws in Spanish, they would just oh, talk, they're like louder Spanish. Slow <laughs> like, get down. Hold you on. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. Okay, yeah. so immersion is the only way, huh? It really, and even then it's like really hard. I mean, I've re I've been reading about it because it's so important to me. Uh, like we've got this far that they're almost four, and Spanish is their dominant language, but you have to like keep it going. So like I'm gonna homeschool them with help from my mom and my aunt for vpk and probably kindergarten to like really solidify the spanish mm -hmm. because typically once kids go into an english speaking mm -hmm. school environment it gets much harder mm -hmm. you're just gonna have to be only speaking to them in spanish forever now yeah and your husband will just be left out in the dark and then it's on he's trying he's, he's trying, trying. Okay. uh he's like you know on his like 900th day of duolingo and you know uh. Yeah, it's going the way you would expect it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I wanted to ask you too, what is um, like now that you're, I, you know, I, I hate to keep kind of going back to this, put a bow on it or like when you're in this, but what the lessons that you've taken from this, right? And, and you have had an ending that you have every right to relish. What do you do to help moms who might still be stuck in their messy middle or their messy beginning? I, with the beginning, I just feel like you have got to just let it ride. I mean, I just do not think what, in no matter what version of motherhood you're in, right? Whether you're adult, like 22 weaker babies or full term kid that you're just like, wow, this is not what I had in mind. Um, you like the, you just have to like not judge that first Mm -hmm. year or two because it's an adjustment not just like yes you have this other human that you have to take care of and like you know things are not balanced because hashtag the patriarchy and like all right there's that piece but then there's also like your body if you are the person who birthed this child and sometimes even if you're not I mean I have a friend who adopted and she dealt with like a version of postpartum depression because you have this like build up, and then mm -hmm. you're like, oh, this is what I got. Like not a disappointment, but like it's not what I thought it was gonna no, be. No, no judgment here, uh, girl. No, it is a very what. But then, like, if you did birth your child, you have like the issues with your hormones. Your body's not what it's supposed to be. Like, you cannot. Um, there is no wisdom. There is just like ride out that first two years, mm -hmm. and then like be self reflective about like what you took from it. Uh, and then I also, for me. I just think you, I chose what my priorities were going to be. And so mm -hmm. if somebody were looking to me to say, like, what am I going to do with my messy middle or, or, or my happy ending or my unhappy ending? It's like, all right, we'll pick what really matters to you because not everything can matter. Hmm. you'll lose your mind if you want your kids to have like the best education and the best food and to like be 
bilingual and to dance tap and to be in a mariachi band, like you have to pick what matters to you. And then also for it not to only be what matters to you with regards to your kids, but like your purpose. And, um, you know, for me, because of the twins prematurity and they were, they they were immunocompromised, I stopped working, Mm -hmm. um, when they came home from the NICU, it was, it was not planned, like, but I was also mm-hmm. delusional uh, to think that I was going to go back to work after two kids, like twins yeah. right after. Um, but anyway, it wasn't planned, I, but it, it was more than I could handle. And I realized it right away. And so I, I stopped working, but um, I needed to find like purpose for myself mm-hmm. outside of just being a mom, especially because like I was 33 years old. I wasn't 21, right. you know, and then that's a different experience too. Um and so I did, I started writing, um, again, and I really found like a cause in this community of peri viability, um, where I like have decided to be a voice for that community and to partner with people who are doing big things in that community. I love that. Can you share too, if you had any particular, like supplement program or like, I, I was, I, I feel like you're a fellow, like crunchy mom a little bit. I don't know if I'm getting that vibe. I heard the, the ancient grains line in the book and I was like, she's my people. Um, d- uh, this will not be considered medical advice. So Never. everybody listening, right? But, I have a marketing degree. Yes. Okay. Right. Creative writing and drama and marketing. Don't listen to us, but do listen to this answer. Um, just because I'm curious, I'm, I'm big on, you know, what we can do to supplement kids' health. And especially because your girls had challenges in the beginning. And I know you were concerned about building their immunity and building their systems. Is there anything that you've loved supplement or food wise, even that you've seen some, some changes with? Yes. Okay. So first of all, there's a doctor. He, I believe on Instagram, he's the gut health MD. He's a gastroenterologist. His name is Will Bolsowitz. Oh my gosh, wait, cyber fueled. Yes. He was brought up by, oh yes, yes, yes. I interviewed this company methodology and he, I, I believe he sort of, um, help them develop their, their line of food, right? Like with an intention specifically. He's amazing. Yes. Oh my gosh. This is life-changing for me. And I wrote, I touched on this in the book. Like I had a friend who sent me a podcast interview where he was being interviewed and then it led me down this rabbit hole, but essentially like to make this as simple as possible Mm -hmm. by the twins got a lot of antibiotics so that Mm -hmm. they wouldn't die. They were necessary, but they wiped out their gut microbiome. So they already had gut issues because they had gut surgery. And then they had more gut issues because their microbiome was wiped out. And so I really felt like, uh, Dr. Bolsowitz's work gave me like at least something I could do because Mm -hmm. I, like you, Sunny, have control issues. So I needed, (laughs) like, I needed to do something, right? Right. So I committed to this. It's very, very plant forward, right? My kids didn't have any, they've never had meat. They've had, they had fish for the first time, like last Thanksgiving, but no, they didn't have dairy until they were like two. And I started introducing it in small amounts um, because it doesn't do the gut favors, right? Right. Um, and I did introduce stuff in small amounts just to make sure they didn't have allergies. And I did this. I really feel like I need to preface this under the supervision of a pediatric gastroenterologist. Right. I did not do this like right. as an experiment that nobody knew about in my basement. Right. I live in Florida and I don't have a basement. Um, <laughs> so we but, did it in the kitchen instead. Right. I'm just kidding. But it was under super, the supervision of their physician. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was the first piece. The other thing which their physician was on board with from the start is uh, probiotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did a lot of research like in collaboration with their physician because they're, I mean, I'm sure you know, you do know, because I just listened to both of the interviews you did, the the weight loss ones where we talk about how things are not regulated by the FDA. And so I'm not going to give my kid like some some probiotic off the shelf at Target. Mm-hmm. And so I did some research on the ones where that had like real life bacteria and that was like mm. naturally found, like naturally like, found in nature and right. like, I asked her doctor if it was okay. And we went with that. So those are the, like the biggest things. What is, what was the brand of probiotics? Are you comfortable saying? We use, yeah. I want to say it's Ion. Ion Bio. Yes, girl. It's the liquid one. Yes. 
Oh my gosh, I take it and squirt it into my kids' mouths every morning. Yes, They're my like, girls take it. It eh. actually is what makes the most difference. I mean, I again, oh not gosh. medical advice, but you'll if please pick up the book so that you so all of this makes sense to whoever's listening. But um, a whole the middle section of the book is called Diarrhea Diaries. Like every part <laughs> is labeled. My second born. I'm sorry, Margot, if you listen to this when you're 25, like or if you read the book. Sorry that I'm talking about you like this. But she literally had like explosive diarrhea for a year after she came home. And the thing that made like the things that have made the biggest Mm -hmm. difference are um, making sure that she has like gets plenty of fiber, um, which, by the way, plantains, green plantains Mm. are a natural um, anti-diarrheal. So how do you prepare them? I literally just boil them and put salt and I mean, you have to peel them. I peel them, boil them. Um, and then put salt and lemon juice on them, but they are natural huh. anti-diarrheal. And they, so between that and the probiotics, we were able to wean Margot off of her anti-diarrheal, which she was like a year old and she was having an adult sized dose of Imodium like three times a day. Oh, so this is like a baby. big deal that we were able to get to that point where to, and wean her off. But so those were the biggest like health things mm-hmm. that I took like for my kids gut health and then all we are like hard I mean we're super hardcore and I don't judge anybody but we are like hardcore like they got no sugar until they were like three and a half Mm -hmm. um and even then I'm like very very rarely do they get anything with sugar I have a cookbook which is called um good and sweet it's the whole cookbook is made with only naturally sweetened ingredients. So like dates, things that are attached to their fiber. So I'm right. sure you know that like sweet things that are naturally sweet and have mm-hmm. their fiber with them. So not juices, which are mm-hmm. stripped of their fiber are like better. Uh, like they're actually fine. Right. They're right. no detriment. Um, if eaten in normal quantities. So the book good and sweet is all baked goods that are made with naturally sweet ingredients. So like if I'm making a cake or if we're having family dinner, like I let my kids have dessert. I don't want them to have food issues. Like that's not what I'm going for. Right. I try really hard to make sure that it's, um, you know, anti-inflammatory, good for the gut health. Everything, everything is nourishing, Mm -hmm. um, rather than just like, substituting things for the sake of not having sugar, like actually creating foods that are nourishing and delicious mm-hmm. is my objective with feeding them. I love talking about this because I'm like, it's, it's been so healing for our family. Um, and so many, not just for my kids, but for my husband and mm-hmm. like, for me, I'm like, have such a great relationship with food. Cause I'm not mm-hmm. scared to eat anything that's in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, so Yeah. You are also my people because there was a part in the book. <laughs> well, first of all, because I already know all those products, like in the stuff you mentioned, and I'm like, oh, this validates me in a way. But also there's a moment where you talked about Botox toward the end. And, you know, anyone who listens to this podcast knows I'm just a raging superficial bitch at times. You know, I care. I care. I don't want to care about my wrinkles, Laura, but I do. Me and too. I think about how that the dialogue of society at large has put me in this position where I I have to care about the next face cream because my identity society tells me is tied up entirely in how I present to the world. And I know that's not true, but there's this little part of me. So anyway, there's a part where you were debating getting um, neuromodulator injections and like you, you go through the, the same exact process that I do every time, which is what am I showing my daughters and my son when I do this? Do I really need to do this? Who is behind my desire to be wrinkle-free and smooth like porcelain? And I will circle the drain for a good two months before I, and I'm currently in that cycle. It's and I'm like, me. yeah, I, right. So did you do it? Did you get the Botox? Well, I had, I had done it okay. before and that was like my, in the book I write about it is like, I'm due for an appointment. Um, and I just like go did back. You go back? I, I haven't like, okay. um, but I, but then I like told my husband like two days ago, like, I really need to like, look at that. <laughs> um, so I'm like, yeah, but I'm like no judgment about it because I understand, no. like, I understand that like we have this society, like the societal okay. pressure is not made up. The societal no, pressure not. is real. And there is like a real instinctive desire to be like pretty. I, I That sounds so fucking retro that I hate myself, but I want to, I want to look pretty and I'm like not scared of that, but I, and I've done stuff to myself and my body. I'm not embarrassed of it, but it is a 
constant dialogue. I tell myself, why can't I be normal, normal girl who just gets her face shut up and walks away and is like, oh, that made me feel good. I have to go through this whole like self-flagellation every time. And then I'll talk Same. about it. I I'll mean, talk, I'm just not normal like that. And I just, I, I saw you. I was like, I, I, I feel you. I think it's you. more normal though than it, like, I think it's more normal than people want to talk, especially once you have kids. Because right. everything that yes. you do, you're modeling for them. Right. Yeah. And so I think it is normal. Um, and I also think like that's a healthy conversation to have with with my kids when they're old enough is like, hey, if you want to do this and it is safe and you've researched it, like that's cool. But I also want you to be self-aware and self-reflective enough to understand like why you're doing it and mm -hmm. that in the end, we're all going to get old, like no matter how much shit we interject into our face. So Damn it. No, yeah, you're right. It's good. We like age. Uh, listen, I, I'd rather get old. The other option is not Yes. Right. So, um, okay. Wait, really quickly before we go, Laura, I have to ask you the question that I asked the parent or the parent, like mother or father of all twins, which is, do they have a cosmic like ESP level bond? Do, do you see them like finishing each other's thoughts? They are like each other's people for sure. I don't know about like the whole ESP thing, but they like you can tell they've never been separate. Like they've never been separated other than those like two, three months between right. Nikki discharges. And it shows because <laughs> if the other one's like not in the room, they're like, where's Marco? Where's Marco? <laughs> or like the idea of like going somewhere with only one, they say you should do that with twins. Like that one parent should go take one out. They're mm. like, no, that is That's... not happening. Uh, so they definitely are each other's people uh, and they don't need to say a whole lot to communicate with each other. I love that. I love that so much. Uh, Laura, when does the book come out? Where can we get it? And where can we follow your writing, which isn't just available in book form, but it's also online? Yes, correct. So I write a newsletter called The Diary of Diaries. This is a subscription-based newsletter where I um, write two essays a month. So if you enjoy the book, you will definitely enjoy The Diary of Diaries. The book is available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or Bookshop.org, which supports local bookstores. You can also go into any bookstore where you prefer to buy your books and ask them to order it, and they can. Uh, and you can also follow along with some of my other writing at LauraHere.com. Awesome. Thank you, Laura, so much for taking the time to talk to me today and break down your journey. And guys, you do have to get this. And here's what it looks like. It's called oh, November not 7th. I don't know if I said that. November you did 7th not say is it, when it but comes no. out. And that's what it looks like. Oh, wait, one more thing. Dying over the captions on the back. <laughs> over the <laughs> so, Sunny, those were supposed to be a placeholder. And when I sent the early copies out, I got like, it's the, nobody cares what I'm doing on social media, but I've never had so many positive comments in response to what I put on the back of that book that I just decided to keep it. It is insane, guys. It's the blurbs. You know how like other authors will come, will get a, an advanced copy of the book and they'll be like, oh, Laura's a genius writer, which you are. But it's from, <laughs> the, my favorite one is from Brother. It says, are you sure you want to publish this? Once this is sitting on someone's bookshelf or in their garage, there's a chance they may actually read it. And it's a bit uh, dramatic. <laughs> It's hysterical. I love it. I love it. Your your sense of humor comes through in like really profound ways, even when you're in, in some really dark moments. So I cannot encourage people to read that book enough. Um, Laura, thank you again for spending some time with me today. Thank you so much, Sunny. It was truly so much fun and I love your show. So it's an honor to be on it. Thank you so much. And thank you guys. If you've been watching or listening, as always, this is the call for those ratings and reviews. Take a minute, pop open your Apple Podcasts feed scroll down, tap five stars, leave a rating and know that I will be virtually hugging you from afar if you do so. Thank you again for watching and listening and we will see you next week on We Gotta Talk. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of We Gotta Talk. If you don't mind, I would love if you could leave a rating and review. Those help this show to get out to people who might find it useful or entertaining. I'm so grateful for your support. Please follow on Instagram at Sunny Abada or check out our latest blog post at wegotatalk.com slash blog. See you next time.